PM board bombs. Now, here's doctors Iltafat Hussein and Blake Briggs. Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast where board studying is now enjoyable. I'm Blake Briggs, comma MD, and I'm joined today by the illustrious, the world-renowned, the world traveler, Iltafat Hussein. What's up? I'm back. Well, world traveler, you just finished your hiking trip in, what was it, the Cayman Islands? Oh, sorry. Oh, no, it was actually Death Valley. That was your other... That's similar. That was your tax-avoiding trip, but uh, (laughs) close to... Yeah, the the only difference between Death Valley and the Cayman Islands is that uh, water. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, anyways, the topic. The topic. For each 15 and 20 minute episode, you gain high yield board knowledge. As we like to say, come for the stems, stay for the content. Please sign up on our website for free updates, episodes, printed handouts, free review quizzes to test your knowledge on topics by going to our website at emboardbombs.com. Again, that is emboardbombs.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram at emboardbombs. Dr. Hussein, are you ready for this topic? All right, let's get started. You have a 73-year-old male who presents to the ER via EMS with a chief complaint of, quote, I can't breathe, quote. EMS states they were called out to an elderly male who looked like he couldn't catch his breath. Family states the patient has not been taking his blood pressure medications because he believes he was on reddit.com forward slash conspiracy. <laughs> that is an actual thread. Keep going. <laughs> I'm sure it is. He saw a thread about the deep state using blood pressure medication to institute Orwellian mind control tactics. <laughs> <laughs> he was telling family members how he fact-checked this by going to Alex Jones' website, which of course is the gold standard. Anyways... While he was explaining his references to family, he had sudden inability to breathe. The patient has a blood pressure on arrival of 220 over 110. His heart rate's in the 130s. And his oxygen saturations are 90% on BiPAP. That was applied by EMS en route. His respiratory rate is 38. And the patient keeps mumbling how he was right about the deep state. (laughs) FYI, it will take about 20 minutes to upload those vitals into Epic if they are ever uploaded. But anyways, continue. What's his temperature, though? (laughs) Which of the following is true? Choice A. Volume overload is the major cause of this patient's presentation. Choice B. Positive pressure ventilation can worsen this patient's hypertension. Choice C. Hydralazine should be avoided. Choice D. Diuresis is the primary goal of treatment. This is a great, great topic that we're doing here because the way to treat this properly if you do it right, you can prevent intubation and you can basically save this person's life in five to seven minutes. The correct answer here yeah. is C, hydralazine should be avoided. And Woo. this is going to seem kind of counterintuitive because folks are going to say, oh, I thought volume overload is the major cause of this. Nope. Hey, I thought that diuresis is the primary goal of treatment. Nope. We're going to talk about what, Dr. Briggs? scapegoat scapegoat scape, scape. also known as flash pulmonary edema but that really shouldn't be the word and the phrase that we use to describe this there is something called just 
acute pulmonary edema. There are all these subtypes of certain types of heart failure. What we're talking about here is scape. It's sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema. This is how it shows up in literature. And it really is the appropriate way to call this what it is. I love how crashing is a part of that acronym. I love that. Right? I love that. <laughs> crashing. That's basically like taking, that's taking like a mundane textbook version and applying like Christopher Nolan to it. <laughs> that is applying Christopher Nolan to it. <laughs> yeah. And look, we're not going to get into the differentiation between scape and uh, non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema and all this other stuff. We're not doing that. All right. We're talking here about scape. Sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema, which is oftentimes in ERs around the country referred to as flash pulmonary edema when it really shouldn't be. But this is essentially the worst case of acute pulmonary edema. It's the most severe form of acute heart failure syndromes. This is usually the most common type of pulmonary edema that we see in the ER that stands out to us. Not the most common type of pulmonary but again, the one that stands out to us in the ER the most, the one that you'll be tested on for boards. What's the mechanism of this? The mechanism is really important to know. It gets into why you shouldn't be giving Lasix right away to this patient, why this patient isn't volume overloaded. So- Wait, what? Yeah, I know, I know. This is gonna <laughs> take people, it's gonna set people back here for a second. So remember, <laughs> when it comes to, it really is, when it because, you know, people will look at the, the chest x-ray and they'll say, oh, it looks like there's a ton of fluid there. All right, let's start getting it off, <laughs> right, while yeah. the patient's on Wait, you don't, like to do, uh, you don't like to do diuresis rounds in the ED? Oh, man. Just like the ICU? Oh, man. It, it, again, <laughs> oh, and again, this is not that slow-burning pulmonary edema, folks. This is not the one where folks are just breathing a little bit heavy. This is the one where the person comes in crashing. Oh, man. So, mechanism. It's a redistribution of fluids. This isn't happening when people are just simply getting volume overloaded. It's why the onset, it's sudden. That's why EMS, the, the story you get from EMS is so critical here. And even the patient is really saying, hey, did this happen all of a sudden? And oftentimes, I literally had a case of this just two days ago. I'll take my fingers, I'll snap it in front of the patient and say, hey, did it just happen like this? And Almost always, it's yes. It was just a sudden onset, and that is absolutely mm -hmm. critical. And that's how on boards they'll present it as well. Is they'll describe this sudden onset. They won't describe this like pitting edema, gradual weight gain, mm -hmm. and now the mm -hmm. patient's coming in with pulmonary edema. You have these elevated cardiac filling pressures. This hits your pulmonary capillaries. It dr it drives all that intravascular fluid into the pulmonary interstitium, into the alveoli. So this is really important to understand because oftentimes you look at that chest x-ray, it, it shows signs of pulmonary edema. You're thinking, oh, this patient's fluid overload. They're actually not. All their intravascular fluid is going into their lungs. Oftentimes, these people are fluid down. So why is it called sympathetic in scape? Again, you're looking at LV dysfunction predisposing you to these quick changes in sympathetic tone. You have this burst of catecholamines. You're increasing your heart rate. You're decreasing your diastolic time. You know, there are certain drugs that cause increase in catecholamines as well. And we won't get into hmm. that. So you have this, like what? <laughs> you have these increased <laughs> sympathetic tone. 
also, which is increasing the permeability of the pulmonary capillaries. There are all these other things going on downstream as well. We're not going to get into all that. Look, the main thing you need to understand is fluid <laughs> is going from where it should be in your body to where it shouldn't in your lungs. It's juicing up your alveoli. It's sudden is how this is happening. This is a cross between an ER doc explaining heart failure and an orthopedic doctor explaining Exactly. Heart and it's perfect. It's like the heart the heart works out, bro, but like too much. <laughs> too much. <laughs> Give that hemodynamics in a summary, Dr. Briggs. You got hemodynamic parameters here that are out of whack. What's that? Well, you're going to have a out of whack decreased cardiac output and impaired LV function like we just said. This results in a surge of catecholamines, which is a vicious cycle, which makes this whole situation worse. So you're going to have increased afterload. Literally described in the literature as vicious cycle, oh, by the way. vicious. But continue. Vicious cycle. Increased afterload due to these catecholaminergic surges. And then continue. increased preload as well due to the backup from impaired LV you know, dysfunction. The thing is, we want to reverse all these parameters. So we want to increase cardiac output to make it more effective. We want to decrease afterload and decrease preload. If you think about it that way, that is where our treatment's gonna come into this. Notice how none of this that we mentioned has to do with volume diuresis. The symptoms, and again, this is a really a clinical diagnosis. That's why when people are waiting for a chest x-ray to make this diagnosis, that's not accurate. You should be able to mm -hmm. identify this as an ER physician within about three minutes. And again, that's why history really does matter. Really taking EMS aside or talking to the patient as briefly as you can mm -hmm. if they're able to communicate with you to find out if it was sudden or not. Because when it comes to symptoms, respiratory distress slash failure is that symptom, it's sudden. This patient, these patients are almost always, always coming in with BiPAP. I would hope they're coming in with BiPAP via EMS. Their blood pressure systolic is yeah. at least, you know, greater than 180, oftentimes higher than that. You're looking at tachycardia. Significant tachycardia is key here. If you're seeing things like bradycardia, this should be a red flag. When you look at their palm exam, oftentimes you're hearing rails crackles. Their skin is cool. You know, why is their skin cool, Dr. Briggs? Pretty obvious. Remember we talked about uh, the mm -hmm. pathophys behind this, where the fluid shifts are happening. Sometimes you can see a JVD as well. Um, Blake, anything else you want to add here? Yeah, just remember here that, you know, commonly I see a lot of interns and students, as well as, you know, I am or people upstairs, always like to review the fact that this patient has a history of systolic or diastolic heart failure. None of that matters in this case. Um, these patients are in such extreme, I guess the word would be what? Uh, oh, crashing, I guess, right? So. Crashing. Viciously crashing. Uh, because these patients are viciously crashing in front of you, it doesn't really matter if they have a history of an EF of 55%. They clearly are having systolic dysfunction right in front of you. Other than don't give them hydralazine, which which is what does matter here. Oh my gosh! Please don't give them hydralazine. What about methyl dopa? Oh, this oh clonidine. Oh, do not do that. Do not. So test to order here. You can go blood gas to humor yourself. Um, that's, that's, I mean. Right, because I just feel bad because like RD's gonna come up to you and be like, "This guy's a my pap," you know, and like, "Don't you want to plug it?" I was like, 
Is it really? <laughs> you know? Anyways, the test, like BNP, chest x-ray, is it always going to show you what you need to see, Dr. Briggs? Not at all. It can yeah. be... No, this is such a rapid onset condition. It can be a normal chest x-ray. Right, right, exactly. You, you know, get your chemistry, CBC, uh, EKG. Right. You can get a troponin to, again, uh, you know, humor yourself. Uh, bedside echo can be helpful here. I guess the only two things you'd have to think about differential-wise that I'd be very concerned about would be um, some form of pericardial effusion. Yes. Uh, which, you know, wouldn't present with hypertensive emergency like this. And then secondly to that would be a dissection, of course. Right. What is our mainstay management here? Let's vasodilate that arterial side. You want to maintain your oxygen. So I think about, for me at least, I look at BiPAP as being that ability to continue to oxygenate the patient and take care mm -hmm. of some of that pathophys, but really oxygenating mm -hmm. the patient until my interventions come through, right? So the mm -hmm. BiPAP settings you should place this patient on, it really ranges. You can start the PEEP anywhere from 6 to 8, but you want to aggressively move that up to 12 to 14 mm -hmm. because this patient's going to be having SATs that are in the 70s, 80s. It's going to be freaking people out. But you need to let everyone know you're thinking about that pathophase. You know those alveoli are just full of fluid right now. You need to recruit mm -hmm. some of those alveoli. You're increasing up that PEEP. You're trying to push that fluid off the alveoli back intravascular as well. Oxygenate. Have that FiO2 cranked all the way up. Concurrently, right. though, what is the thing you need to be giving right away and having everyone prep for, Dr. Briggs? You need to get these patients the precursor to dynamite. Oh, and nicardipine? <laughs> We're not doing nicardipine trips here, but the blood pressure is so high. <laughs> nitro, please, please give them nitro, 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 nitro. 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 Remember, low-dose nitro, it's only really doing venodilation. Higher doses are what are going to be doing the arteriodilation. You need to decrease afterload. Let's repeat that again. You need to decrease afterload, allowing you to cut off that vicious cycle, that sympathetic upsurge. Hey, can you say it louder from the back? I know. You need to decrease <laughs> that afterload. So that small dose of nitro that you're giving, that's simply reducing preload, the body's laughing at you, right? Like, you're not going to see our effect of that. Yeah, it's like the body saying, This gives you power over me. <laughs> You know this. You're you're bringing uh, Christopher Nolan, right? I mean, was that Christopher Nolan's last yeah, Christopher one Nolan. that, that he did Bane. the? Yeah, Bat Dark I know Rises. Batman Bane. You were. I love. I mean, he's like one of my favorite directors. So I I don't fault you for bringing. Oh, he's him amazing. Bane. But that was good. He's amazing. That is good. Oh. That is. You should really think about Bane every time you start this patient on nitro drip at ten. Do you feel in charge? <laughs> oh my gosh! Nothing is happening. Dr. Briggs, I'm not going to get into these bolus pushes of nitro. There is some solid literature behind that, but you might get looked at oddly in your ER by your protocol team or your pharmacist if you tell them to start pushing two milligrams of nitro boluses every few right, minutes right. or starting the patient off on uh, right. 200 uh, micrograms per minute of nitro. If they find out about it. <laughs> correct, correct. <laughs> What we recommend is, and at least for boards, you need to know nitro is the correct answer. And a lot sure. of nitro is sure. the correct answer. And remember, sure. how, many, how much nitro is in one sublingual? Uh, a lot. <laughs> yes. It's like 400. <laughs> Microgram, <laughs> Micrograms. Right, right, usually, right. Exactly. So you've got plenty of <laughs> nitro there to deal with. You can give that to the patient as you're switching them onto your own BiPAP machine. That's what I oftentimes will do getting in 600 micrograms plus per minute 
Hey, what's next after this? So you've given them nitro. That seems to be working well. What Dude, else can you here do? comes here comes the next most ninja thing ever. I love doing this at work, and people, including medicine upstairs, just like looks at you like what is when you give an IV ACE inhibitor. Yes. I love doing this, like Vasotec or Enalapril. What does that do though? What are you trying to do with the ACE? So great reduction in afterload really helps that whole you know adverse vicious cycle remodeling process with the. Uh, the RAS system, remember that? Renin, angiotensin, aldosterone oh, system. That's not, uh, that's too much, too much. Oh, that's I'm sorry, I just had to say it. I just had to say it. You've been impressing me today with so much. I have to show that I'm worthy of being in your presence. <laughs> oh, so, <my> gosh. <laughs> IV ACE inhibitor. Uh, Use with caution, obviously, if they have renal dysfunction, like a creatinine greater than three. Uh, but this is going to helpfully reduce your afterload even more. Like I said, this is a ninja move. You do this, you're an ED ninja. Right, right. And oftentimes what I'll do, like, for example, when I had this patient just a few days ago, I asked my pharmacist to give me the last renal function and they pulled it up. It was normal. Went ahead and pushed that as well. Bam, Helped the bam. patient out a lot. And, and really, you can see dramatic improvement at times within five to seven minutes Absolutely. of this aggressive therapy. And remember, this is that happy Gilmore moment where the ball wants to go in the hole. You know, mm-hmm. I, I keep thinking about Happy Gilmore. And is it all in the hips? The ball. I know. And he's like, go to the hole. You want to go to the hole. But this is where fluid wants to get out of the lungs. It really does. So yeah. you have to create an environment where the fluid will rapidly, from the time it rapidly shifted into the alveoli to rapidly shifting back mm-hmm. intravascularly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you do that by being very aggressive with your nitro drip uh, by your sublingual nitro, and even doing you know potential boluses of nitro if that's okay at your facility, then you're gonna see these dramatic shifts. The fluid is gonna rapidly go back intravascularly. The lungs are gonna sound much better. And you're gonna be able to wean that patient off of BiPAP pretty quickly. Again, we kind of alluded to this before, this isn't a fluid issue. So when you see answer choices related to Lasix, that's not the right choice here. You might actually cause the patient to have hypotension by giving them Lasix, and you're going to falsely think it was that nitro drip you started, where mm-hmm. in reality, what you're doing is is taking all their fluid off. So yeah. Lasix, again, it's it's great in acute pulmonary edema, and these are for those patients who come, this is for those patients who come in with low O2 sats. They're not an extremist. They've got a little bit of elevated respiratory rate. They've got the pitting edema, the JVD, but they're not an extremist, right? Uh, the um, smoldering, you know, heart failure, Ooh. hypertensive patient, right? <laughs> with some pulmonary edema, the smoldering, we're bringing it back as bring a reference back. from our old podcast. <laughs> That's the word of the um, year. I know, I know. And as as ER physicians, as EM physicians, we always have to remember kind of the end thing is certainly intubation, but you really should be able to avoid intubation on these people. Uh, Hey, summarize some of the key points here that we talked about, especially for the boards and how they're going to try to trick you on the boards by trying to get you to answer uh, some of these other answer choices that we listed. All right. So remember that this is SCAPE, not flash pulmonary edema. SCAPE is sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema. It's the worst case of acute pulmonary edema. It is not due to volume overload. It's a redistribution of fluids. You have decreased cardiac output, impaired LV function due to a surge of catecholamines. You have an increased heart rate, decreased diastolic time, and then obviously increased afterload and increased preload, which makes things worse. These patients come in crashing. They're in extremis. They're in respiratory distress with high blood pressure, tachycardia, rawls, as they say in Canada, crackles, (laughs) and sometimes JVD and cool skin. (laughs) 
tests you're ordering is not going to help you at all. It's a clinical diagnosis. Your chest x-ray can often be normal. Sometimes it shows interstitial edema. Remember, the management is going to be vasodilation of the arterial side and then maintaining oxygenation. You do this with nitro and BiPAP, the two most important things. In general, increasing your PEEP before FiO2. It's more important. You got to recruit those alveoli. Nitroglycerin, you should do high-dose nitroglycerin. The low dose is only going to do venodilation. You need to do afterload reduction, so arterial dilation. You're doing high-dose nitro. Sublingual is a great place to start as you're waiting for a drip. None of that matters for the boards, and they're never going to test you on that type of particular stuff right now. If that doesn't work, we switch to nitroprusside, and if that doesn't work, uh, we're also thinking at the same time about doing an IV ACE inhibitor, which can help reduce afterload further. You can do this as long as the patient has no renal dysfunction. Remember that Lasix, we haven't mentioned that yet until the end. Lasix is like a fourth-line option. It's great for acute pulmonary edema, but this is not the problem. Remember the mechanism that this is not a volume overload problem. This is a volume redistribution problem. So Lasix comes later. When you are later. done clicking, when you are done admitting the patient and they're waiting for a bed, you can maybe give it if the inpatient team asks for it. Usually right. they always do. And then intubation <laughs> is a last resort. <laughs> Woo! That was pretty good, wasn't it? Don, I like it. That was really good. I'm impressed. It's a slow golf clap in the background. We need some music there. <laughs> That's another bomb delivered. Remember, you can find us on Twitter. Our handles at Ian Borbombs, as Instagram as well. Please drop us an Apple review. We've had some really helpful Apple reviews. Uh, we really greatly appreciate it. If there's a particular topic you want, let us know in the reviews. All right, let's take us out. See you next time. Bye.